stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. These first 18 verses of Acts chapter 11, reading from the English Standard Version, beginning again, verse 1. We've just heard about the Gentiles receiving the gospel, and here's the response of the church. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill, and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then, God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to to life. You may be seated. May God encourage and strengthen us through his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we are just very mindful today of of your grace to us. You have brought us into relationship with you through your son Jesus. We we pray that as a church, uh, we would proclaim that gospel message. We pray as individuals, we would proclaim that gospel message. And we pray for the, the sin of partiality, that, that may exist within our hearts, within our church. We, we pray that you would forgive us of that and help us to turn from that. Lord, we recognize we live in a, a country that is divided, divided among, among many people, along many lines, and we, we pray for our leaders. We pray for uh, the president, members of Congress, members of the judicial branch. We, we pray for our local and state officials as, as they navigate these things. We pray that you would help them to, to lead us in paths of peace, that we'd be able to live quiet, peaceable lives as we proclaim the gospel. And when persecution and division arises, help us to stand united as a church, uh, united through the work of your Spirit, by our faith in your Son, Jesus, according to the, the gospel we all believe. We pray this in your son Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, today the, the focus of the text, I, I believe, is about the sin of partiality within the church. 
how the sin of partiality distracts the church from the gospel mission that God would have for the church. And so today we're looking at the text, and one of the questions you may have as we think about the sin of partiality that exists here in the first century is, okay, I, I see how the sin of partiality affected the church in the first century. How exactly does the sin of partiality affect the church today in 2021 here in central Illinois? How does it exist today? And I think that's a great question. And I think the answer is, of course, it, it does affect the church, that the same hearts that can be guilty of partiality in the first century, we, we have those hearts as well. The sin of partiality can exist in our hearts also. And what I'm going to do this morning, kind of illustrate the sin of partiality, is I'm going to sometimes illustrate the sin of partiality by talking about the relationship between uh, black and white Christians and black and white Americans. And I, I recognize that there are some problems with this. Uh, there's some, some problems with, with talking about this as an illustration. One, not all of us are either black or white Americans or black or white Christians. We wouldn't con consider ourselves or identify ourselves that way. And so this doesn't affect every person in here in terms of being one of those two specific groups. It, it also can be a problem in that it can unnecessarily limit the application of, of principles related to the sin of partiality. In other words, we say, okay, it's a, maybe it's a black and white issue. Uh, I don't fit into one of those groups, or I don't struggle with that. And so it can kind of unnecessarily limit the application of the biblical principles here about avoiding the sin of partiality. And really, the, the heart of partiality can go far deeper than, than just the racial issues or ethnic issues or whatever uh, other specific two groups you want to focus on. So I recognize there's some problems with doing that, but how, having said that, I think that all of us can, can acknowledge, yeah, there, there is a division between those who would identify themselves as, as one of those two ethnic groups. In fact, uh, there are no two, according to many studies by, by sociologists, there are no two groups in the United States that have, on average, more widely variant uh, experiences. These experiences between these two groups, on average, are, are very great. You think about all the different statistics. You know, there's black and white Americans live in, in two different economic realities, on average. It said that uh, one, one of the studies I was reading this past week from a book uh, talked about how the average, you've took the uh, average black and, and white American, they're, they're greatly different in terms of their economic uh, worlds they live in. You could take away uh, all the home ownership and car ownership of white Americans, and the average white American would still have a greater net worth than the average black American. So there's, a, there's an economic a difference between these groups. They live in different economic worlds oftentimes. They live in different cultural groups uh, different, different cultural worlds sometimes. Uh, one year, the, the most popular show among black Americans was the 122nd most popular show among white Americans. We live in different cultural worlds sometimes. And we also oftentimes, as you know, live in different religious worlds. Even black and white Christians uh, live in very different religious environments, different Church environments. The average 
a black Christian is going to go to a church that is predominantly black. The average white Christian is going to go to a church that is predominantly majority culture white. That's a reality, and frankly, uh, it's it, that historic cause of that is is largely the fault of of white Christians historically. And I don't, I, you know what? I don't know what I'm going to say this morning that's controversial. Sometimes I think I say something that's pretty innocuous and turns out to be controversial. So remember, we all love each other here. Um, So I don't know what's controversial sometimes and what's not. But bottom line, the idea is this. The division between these two groups is is broad. The division between the divide is is great. And again, some of the books I was reading over the past few weeks, as they talk about this, even this religious division between these two groups, black and white Christians, they would argue the situation is really bleak, that the things that have caused white and black Christians to worship in different ways in different churches, those, those things are continuing, and the, the division is going to become greater and greater, according to uh, many sociologists who, who study these things. Now, is that true? Is the situation hopeless? I would argue in Christ... Absolutely not. The situation is not hopeless. In fact, think about this. In the first century, if you think the division between black and white Christians is great, or whatever other two groups you want to contrast, old people and young people, whatever, whatever groups you want to set up against one another, you say, okay, these two groups are, are greatly divided. If you think whatever two groups you're thinking of are greatly divided, think about the divide between first century Jews and first century Gentiles. There was an incredibly great divide between these two groups. In fact, one Jewish teacher writing in the times right before Peter is living, he said this to his his Jewish audience, speaking of Gentiles, he said, separate yourself from them. Separate yourself from them. Eat not with them. Become not their associate. All their ways are a pollution and an abomination and uncleanness. Now, some of, the Peter, some of the people that Peter is dealing with who are part of the Jewish church now, that's their view of Gentiles. And if you think there's a great divide between black and white Christians or this Christian group and that Christian group and it seems hopeless, if, if you think that's wide in a hopeless situation, just imagine being Peter in first century Jerusalem trying to bridge the gap between Gentile and Jew believer. And if Peter and the early church believe that this is important to address and the sin of partiality must be dealt with here in the first century, then certainly we can agree that it must be dealt with in, in our culture as well. Because the problem the church in the first century has is that God does not tolerate division among his people. Same problem we have in our culture today. God does not tolerate division within his people. God calls his people to unity. 
You see, God desires not just a large number of people worshiping him, but God's call is for a diverse group of people to be engaged in worship of him. Remember what we read just a few weeks ago in the book of Revelation. It's not just a large number of people worshiping God. It's people from every tribe and tongue and, and nation and people group. There's diversity of worship that God desires. God's worship is not just to be expansive in terms of its number. God's worship is to be expansive in terms of its diversity. The sin of partiality cannot exist within Christ's church. You say, okay, well, if that's what God wants, how in the world can we accomplish that? And the answer is through the work of the Spirit. Here's the main idea I want us to think about this morning. An awareness of the presence of the Holy Spirit rescues our church from the sin of partiality and focuses us on the joy of worship. An awareness of the presence of the Holy Spirit, in other words, the Holy Spirit working within his people, causing them to understand the unity that exists through their common faith in Jesus Christ, allows the church to overcome the sin of partiality that all of us are guilty of and allows us to engage in the joy of worship. God has given us his Spirit. And the way in which the early church is going to overcome the obstacle of partiality is the same way that we are going to overcome the obstacle of partiality as well. And so there's a couple things that I want us to look at this morning, and here's the first thing. The first thing that I want us to look at is the distracting sin of partiality in the church. The distracting sin of partiality in the church. And look at verses 1 through 3 with me, if you will. And by the way, when I say distracting, I don't mean like distract in the sense of it's, it's a minor nuisance. You know, I'm, I'm distracted by a, a loud noise over there, and I'm just kind of a, an annoying thing, or I'm distracted by a fly, and it's kind of this, this small nuisance. No, I, I mean distract in the sense of we have a mission as a church, and the mission of our church is to glorify God as we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and prepare his people to worship him forever, and the sin of partiality is going to distract us from that. It's going to move us away from that purpose that God has for us. And again, look at the text. Cornelius and his household have all placed their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. They've recognized that he is the Messiah. And at the end of chapter 10, Peter has commanded them to be baptized, and he's remained with them for some days. Now we come to verse 11, and we see that the conversion of Cornelius and his household has made a stir. Uh, People are aware of this. There's a recognition that the makeup of the church has, has fundamentally changed in some ways. And I love the phrase here. Look at the text. It says, they hear about what's happened, that the Gentiles, this is verse 1, had also received the word of God. They'd received the word of God. It, it means there to, to, to readily take in. Paul in 1 Thessalonians, as he's talking to the people in Thessalonica about how they had placed their faith in Jesus Christ, he says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord Jesus. You received the word. You received the word. You accepted it as true in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And then he talks about how you you turned from idols to serve the living and true God. That's what's happened among these Gentile Christians, Cornelius and his household. That's, That's what's happened. How should have the church responded when this took place? What should have been the response of the church as they hear that Gentiles 
have recognized the, the, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, but believed in him. What, what should the response have been? The response should have been joy, right? There, there's excitement. This is amazing. They should have seen, okay, now we understand how God is going to fulfill his plan to reach Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth. And, and what should have happened is what begins to happen in the last half of the chapter where they begin this evangelistic outreach and planting churches in Gentile areas. That's not what happens, is it? It says that he goes up to Jerusalem, Peter does, and he's confronted. There's criticism, verse 2. It says the circumcision party criticized him. There's, in other words, there's a, a critique of his ministry. There's a, a negative evaluation of what's just taken place. And it says it's by the circumcision party. This would have been a, a group within the church that was very attached to cultural Judaism. Maybe it was the Pharisees who had placed their faith in Jesus Christ and were still very much a part of the, the Jewish culture. That group looks at what's happened and instead of glorifying God and being excited about this, this incredible thing that's taken place, there's, there's critique there's a negative evaluation of the ministry that Peter has just been engaged in. And they ask him the question, or it's a statement, and, and, the, and their area of negative evaluation is you've gone to the uncircumcised, you've, you've gone to the people who are not Jewish, and you've fellowshiped with them. Instead of being excited about the gospel opportunity here, there is a negative evaluation because Peter has, has engaged in, in fellowship with those who are outsiders in this group's mind. People like this are, are so discouraging, right? <laughs> Every pastor knows people like this. Every person who's been involved in ministry for some amount of time knows people like this. Many of us can struggle with being people like this, right? God is, is doing some sort of work. There's, there's something happening, and, and there's, there's a negative evaluation of it because it doesn't quite fit our mold of what we think ministry needs to look like in a church or in a community of faith. And, and the heart that negatively evaluates what's happening on is happening going on in a church is a heart of partiality. Yeah, I mean, I can remember when I was a youth pastor, you know, sometimes, yeah, okay, sure, the, the kids are, there's kids who are coming to faith in the Lord, and there's, you know, there's excitement about knowing the things of the Lord, but there's this other ministry that I want, a person might say, that I want kids to be involved, and they're not doing that, and so things aren't going, on, going well here. Or imagine if, imagine if the Lord brought in, by, by his grace, he brought into our church a large number of people who had not been believers before, and, and all of a sudden they, they become part of the church, and the church culture begins to change. And, and maybe the people who are coming to the church, they're involved in serving, they're involved in Sunday school classes, they're involved in a, a lot of ministries, but maybe, maybe some of them don't, uh, don't get involved in our care group ministry. They begin to do care group or small groups in, in a different way, doing Christian life. And th what, can, what can happen? Well... They're in the church, but they're not part of our care group ministry. In other words, we can have, based upon our cultural baggage, based upon what we've experienced in church, as people come into a church, as, as we see God working in church, our, our tendency sometimes can be, well, it's not, they're not 
integrating the church the way that I would want someone to integrate into the church. They're not being involved in these specific ministries that I would desire for a person to be involved in. Therefore, there's a negative evaluation about how God is working. It is incredibly discouraging. It comes from a heart of partiality, and it cannot be part of Christ's church. We can't have this heart attitude. They're aghast, the circumcision party, that Peter could fellowship with Gentiles. Their criticism reveals their hearts. Their hearts are hearts of partiality. They believe that the values of their group, listen to this, they believe that the values of their group, the values of cultural Judaism, were more important than the gospel. And they were willing to break fellowship if people were not willing to adopt and adapt to their cultural circumstances. Don't minimize the issues that would have separated first century Christians. Sometimes we can look at divisions that exist within the church in America today and we say, well, these divisions are, are so great and no culture has ever had to struggle with things like we have and the divisions that exist here are, are just beyond the ability of God to even deal with. Don't minimize what's happening in the first century. Think about just Jesus' disciples. Think about the people, just the Jews that he brought to, to faith in himself, the, the 12 disciples. I mean, on, on one hand, he had Matthew, a tax collector. So someone that would have been seen as very close to the, Roman, the hated Roman government, someone considered very liberal. And on the, on the other hand, he, he also brought in Simon the Zealot. I mean, the, the Zealots are going to be the people who lead the revolt against Rome. Now, can you imagine the discussions Simon and Matthew have with one another? There might have been some tense conversations. You look throughout the New Testament, you see that there are people from different, different political ends of the spectrum, different religious ends of the spectrum, and, and what happens? They're all brought into the church. The issues that exist were important and I'm sure that there were different opinions about how to relate to the Roman government among the early church, among Jesus' own disciples. But those differences paled in comparison with the fellowship that existed through the work of the Spirit because of the gospel. I mean, imagine if the, if the early disciples had become so entrenched on their different opinions about the Roman government that it distracted them from the gospel ministry, that the Roman Empire is now gone. The church remains. We need to recognize the distraction that the sin of partiality can, can be. I'm spending a lot of time on this first point because I think it's so crucial for us to understand this foundational issue. We need to recognize the distraction the sin of partiality will create for our mission as a church. Again, think about it in the terms of the white-black Christian divide. Kevin DeYoung wrote a really great article a few years ago called Racial Reconciliation, what we mostly, almost all agree on and what we likely still don't agree on. He talked about how people on different sides of some of the issues related to racial reconciliation, how as Christians, he says, he's talking here about Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, gospel-celebrating, sanctification-seeking, church-going Christians, how we can have different opinions on different issues that are very, very important issues, but it's okay to have some disagreements on. So, for example, he talks about the issue of racism, 
What, what do we agree on? I think this is really helpful. He says, well, first of all, we all, all Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians agree that all people are made in the image of God and deserving of honor, respect, and protection. Every notion of racial superiority is a blasphemous denial of the Imago Dei. There's no place for racial prejudice and ethnic favoritism in the church. Where bigotry based on skin color exists, it must be denounced and repented of. All, all of us agree on that, right? But he said there's also some issues that we disagree on. We do not agree on, on what counts as racism, what else counts as racism, or the degree to which our cultural, civic, and ecclesiastical institutions are either race-blinded or racialized or outright racist. And he talks about the issue of racial disparities, right? The issues of racial disparities. He says we all agree that there are deep and disturbing differences between blacks and whites when it comes to a variety of statistical measurements. So education, employment, income, incarceration, homeownership, standardized test scores, single-parent households, participation at the highest levels of leadership in businesses, academics, athletics, and politics. So we all, we all agree on that, right? The statistics are what the statistics are. Now, we also disagree. We do not all agree on the reasons for these disparities, whether they're owning to personal choices, cultural values, families of origin, educational opportunities, structural racism, legacy of oppression, or a combination of these and other factors. We don't, also, we don't agree on the best approach to closing these gaps among black and white Christians. We don't agree on the best approaches to closing these gaps. And he, he goes on, you know, political measures, engagement of the church. We don't all agree on how the church should be engaged. In fact, one of the books I was reading this, this past week, this is very interesting. Black and white Americans have, a, a, have on average, different opinions about what causes inequality in America. Black Americans tend to, on average, focus more on some structural issues. White Americans tend to focus more on, on explanations related to personal responsibility. Okay? But here's what's interesting. When you talk about not just black Americans and white Americans, when we talk about black Christians and white Christians, we're even further apart than the average black and white American. A black Christian and a white Christian are even further apart on average in terms of what we consider explanations for why inequality exists. You say, Daniel, what's the point? Who cares? Here, here's my question for you as we think about this division. The differences are real. The differences are profound between these groups and other groups too. This is just an illustration. But these issues are not gospel issues. And my, my question for us is, are we willing to be distracted from our mission as a church because of our differences on these issues? Are we willing to break fellowship with other believers because they disagree with us on some of their opinions related to these issues? I'm not. Brother in Christ has a different opinion about the root issues related to inequality. I'm not breaking fellowship with him or her over that, right? Uh, brother or sister younger, older than me, has a different cultural understanding of, of, of music in the church or of uh, different, you know, favorite ministries that should exist in a church. I'm not breaking fellowship over that, right? 
The sin of partiality, brothers and sisters, is going to distract us from gospel ministry. The sin of partiality, we have to recognize, my, my application here would be, look, we have to recognize the distraction that the sin of partiality creates from gospel ministry. For example, it's going to distract us from gospel freedom and the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture tells me that everything I need to do in order to be obedient to God is found in his word. And if something is not found in his word, I'm not bound to that. And so it's the legalistic heart that, that comes also from this sin of partiality. It says, okay, uh, I know it's not in Scripture, but this is also how you have to act if you're going to be a part of this culture of worship and involved in gospel ministry. Recognize the sin of partiality is going to distract us from the ministry of reconciliation. I'm going to get so focused on the distractions that I forget that I'm here to proclaim the gospel of peace. Now, it is not sinful to have strong opinions about many issues, right? It's not sinful to have strong opinions about certain foods or how to raise your children or types of education or political preferences. The sin of partiality is to consider others more or less on the basis of external characteristics and the sin of partiality may be one of the reasons you're distracted right now from evangelistic ministry. If people know about your opinions on private school or public school or homeschooling, they know how you feel about vaccines, they know how you feel about baseball, they know how you feel about Black Lives Matter or climate change, but they don't know how about your allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ and how a person comes into faith with God, into relationship with God through faith in his son, there's a distraction, right? We've become distracted. If people know your opinions about a variety of issues and don't know about their need to place their faith in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, you've gotten distracted. Brothers and sisters, let's not let our church get distracted. The distracting sin of partiality in a church will kill our gospel witness. Here's the second thing I want us to talk about. Number two, the unity of the Spirit in the church, right? The unity of the Spirit in the church. So we don't want to get distracted with partiality. We also want to celebrate the reality that we are united by the Spirit. Peter says, look, guys, 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 let me lay it out to you in an orderly fashion. And, and notice what Peter focuses on, and maybe also notice some things he doesn't focus on, as he describes to them what took place. And really, he's going to lay out, we're going to spend a lot of time in these verses because he's laying out what happened in chapter 10. He reminds them of, you know, I was in Joppa, I had this vision, uh, the sheet was lowered, I saw the animals, the voice told me to kill and eat. I said, by no means, Lord. And, and he says, this, uh, it was told not to, um, not to call anything clean, or what God has made clean, don't call common. And then look at verse 11. It says, at that moment, the three men arrived at the house and which we were, and they, they were sent to me from Caesarea. And verse 12 says, And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. Now, that word for uh, no distinction is the same word that's used earlier to describe the criticism that the circumcision party has against Peter. So in other words, Peter's saying, look, the thing that you guys are doing is exactly what the Spirit told me not to do. Then he goes on. He says, these six brothers, this is new details. He tells us the exact number of people who had gone with them. These six brothers, so seven of us all together, accompanied him. They get 
they can testify as to what took place. And he also mentions in verse 14 that Cornelius had been told that he was going to receive a message by which he would be saved. Verse 16, he also tells us as he sees the Spirit fall upon these Gentile believers as they believe the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he remembers the words of the Lord about John baptizing with water and that uh, we, as the apostles, the early church, will baptize with the Spirit. So he lays this all out in an orderly fashion. What is he doing? He's focusing on the most important details to not be distracted by peripheral issues, but to to focus his listeners' hearts on the gospel points, on the work of God, the Spirit's unifying work through the gospel. It's not just the distraction, the sin of partiality, but the reality that the Spirit has created. The Spirit has created a unified church. This is a creation of God, not man. What's the problem in the church? The problem at best, the problem at best is we ignore the unity that the, that the Spirit has created in his church. That's, that's the best case scenario that the, problem, that the problem in the church is. Best case, we just ignore what the Spirit's doing. Worst case scenario as a church is we actively work to undermine the unifying work of the Spirit as we lob grenades at other believers. We fail to see the unity that the Spirit has created and we actively promote disunity due to the sin of partiality. I'm reading a lot of books right now on racial reconciliation and, and the sin of partiality and, and I'll tell you, the, the tone is often not good. It's, it's not God-glorifying in my opinion. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not. I'm convinced personally, I'm convinced personally that the divide between Christians who have different opinions on, on these issues, Bible-believing Christians, is, is less than they think it is sometimes. It's certainly, uh, certainly the reality that the Spirit has created unity, and we need to be careful to do all we can to recognize that unity. Now, I, I know what some of you are saying, right? Some of you are saying, but Daniel, but Daniel... Um, isn't there a time for us to take a stand and for there, there to be disunity? Isn't there a time for us to take a stand and, and, and to create divisions? And the answer is yes. Uh, there, there is a time for that. There absolutely is a, a time to take a stand for truth. And some of you are saying, yeah, let's, let's barricade the doors, barricade the church doors, and endure persecution. And, and I would say absolutely. There, there is a time whenever people who have named the name of Jesus Christ have by their, by their actions or by their, uh, by their affirmations, they've, they've denied the gospel. And there's a time for us to say, look, I know those people are naming the name of Christ, but they are not of us. They have rejected God, they've rejected the authority of his word, and so it's, it's time for us to, to separate ourselves from that. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. But it's not always on the issues that we think it is, right? 
sometimes we have the, due to the sin of partiality, we're not willing to see the unifying work of the Spirit. And if someone isn't able to, to come along to our cultural understanding of, of what we think should exist within the church, we're willing to, to jettison unity very, very quickly. And what I would say to those of you who are wanting to barricade the doors and you know, you know, start the wars and so forth, look, persecution's coming, right? There, there is going to be a divide. But I don't think it's the divide that some other people think the divide is. It's not going to be between you know, the, necessarily the, the left and the right and, and, or whatever two groups are going to pit against each other. What we see, there's, there's a narrow path that leads to salvation. And we need to be united with others who are professing the gospel both by their, by their, their words and by their deeds. This goes far beyond cultural group identities and, and much more into the work of the Spirit. Okay, here's the third thing I want us to think about. It, the Christ-centered importance of, of unity in the church. So if, if the sin of partiality is a distraction and the Spirit has created unity, then this unity is, is crucial. It's, it's a unity that is centered on and exalts the person of Jesus Christ. Peter goes on, and he's, as, after he relates what's happened, he says, look, if, if God... If God himself gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? You see, unity here is not something incidental to ministry, but unity fuels our ministry and actions. Peter says, look, this is the conclusion I reached. If, if this is God's plan to take people who are different than us and unify us through the work of the Spirit, I am completely in sin if, if I stand against that, and so I, I acted accordingly, we were, they were baptized. The reality that we're one is not incidental to the ministry we pursue. It fuels our ministry. I want you to think about this. Who is it who attacks the saints? Who is it that, that tears down the church? It's not to be the saints. The church isn't supposed to tear down the church. The one who tears down the church is the enemy. Think about Revelation 13 again, the, the passage we looked at some weeks ago. The, the beast is allowed to make war on the saints. The, the, the demonic, empowered, Satan-supported work of the beast is to make war on the saints, to conquer them. And authority was given over the beast over every tribe and people and, and nation and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of this lamb who was slain. What, what does the lamb do? The lamb purchases the unity of the church by his blood. So, okay, Daniel, uh, but man... This group over here is so wrong on such and such an issue. They are so misguided on, on such and such a belief. They are so far removed from right thinking on this issue. To which I would say, okay. And? <laughs> right? If, if it's not an issue related to the, the central teaching of, of, of the gospel, I would say we still have a responsibility by God's grace to pursue the unity that the gospel creates. 
And what we need to do individually and, and corporately is, okay, we need to recognize our sin of partiality and recognize that our sin of partiality is an attack upon the work of Jesus Christ. And we're going to do all that we can to overcome that by God's grace. The passion of my heart in ministry is, is the unity of Christ's church. If something the last 10 years has been under great threat, and the, the passion of my heart, the passion of the ministry in which God, I think, has, has given me at this moment in church history, and has given us as well, is a, a desire, determined desire, to pursue unity that will exalt Jesus Christ in a world that wants disunity. What's the fruit of unity in the church? That's the last thing I want us to think about here this morning, the fruit of unity in the church. We see this in verse 18. Peter, Peter tells them all of this, and, and it says they, they respond to what he has said in this way. It says they hear these things, they, they shut their mouths, which, boy, what a, what a great application in so many ways, right? How much disunity could be avoided if we just shut our mouths sometimes, right? When they heard these things, they deleted their Twitter account. No, when they, when they heard these things, they, they stopped talking. They fell silent. They thought. They pondered what Peter was saying. And then, here's the fruit of the unity that the Spirit creates. They glorified God. And they recognized that God had given to the Gentiles the same thing that they needed God to divinely give to them. He's granted repentance. He's allowed them to turn away from sin. And he's allowed them to find life in Jesus Christ. They stopped critiquing. They stopped judging based upon these external secondary concerns. And they worship God. They glorify God. This is the right focus. And the rest of chapter 11 is going to continue to talk about the, the fruit of this as the gospel is proclaimed and there's a church plant that becomes this amazing church plant throughout the rest of the book of Acts. They recognize, look, we've both repented, we've both believed, both these groups, we've both received eternal life, and now we're both to engage in glorifying God together. It's not the last time these issues are going to come up in the book of Acts. We're going to see it again in Acts chapter 15. We're going to see, we've seen it in the book of Galatians. The heart of partiality goes so much deeper in a church than, than just ethnic issues, right? The sin of partiality of believing that whatever group I identify myself as a part of is more right than whatever group you're a part of is a sin we have to constantly battle against. But it's worth it. The battle is worth it. The Holy Spirit has created a unity that brings us together and allows our identity in Jesus Christ to be far greater than whatever, whatever other identity we think we have in external groups. An awareness of the presence of the Holy Spirit rescues our church from the sin of partiality and focuses our hearts on the joy of worshiping God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for the work of your spirit. We, we pray that you would reveal to us the, the ways in which the sin of partiality causes us to, to seek disunity, 
to disparage brothers and sisters in, in Christ and to, to put up obstacles to others coming in and, and fellowshipping with us, we pray that by your grace you would remove the blind spots from, from our eyes. You would help us to see clearly the unity that your Spirit has created. Help us to focus on those gospel issues that allow us to proclaim the good news of your Son, Jesus, to those who do not know you. We pray this in his name. Amen.